Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number 28. So, therefore, we don't have that many more shows to go. We're getting pretty close to the end. I did my calculations uh, uh, recently, and uh, we have a total of 32 shows. Today, what we're going to be doing is talking about something called taxation of real estate. And uh, so... We're going to be talking about such things as property taxes. And uh, just so you have a rough idea what we're talking about with property taxes, what it means is the fact that any property that is not owned by the government, in other words, by the county, city, state, federal government, the words private property, property like we own, our homes, we have something called property taxes that we have to pay. So we'll be talking about those. Uh, the second thing we're going to be talking about also along that line is something called special purpose or special types of property tax. Or, in other words, taxes that are levied against property that we may own for certain kinds of improvements that are directly affecting our property or the properties that are in our community. The third type of tax we're going to be talking about is something called the documentary transfer tax stamps. This is something that uh, I probably have mentioned this before, especially in the beginning of the semester, where we're discussing about the fact that when you sell a piece of property from one person to the other, the amount of equity that is sold or transferred, you're paying $1.10 per thousand or 55 cents per $500, and we'll talk more about that. We're also going to be talking about something called income taxes, That'll be near the end, possibly maybe even the next time. And the reason why that becomes important is not that you're going to become a tax expert, but what is important is that you are very aware of what the tax laws are so that you can at least be able to say to a client, you know, maybe I would recommend that you need to sit down with your accountant and discuss the sale of your residence because you're moving into an area where you may be subject to some kind of uh, capital gains or, or uh, income tax consequences, or especially if you're dealing in the purchase or the sale of uh, investment property, anything from a single-family home to, a, um, to a, a small duplex, fourplex apartment house, so you need to be concerned about that. And then somewhere in there, we're going to be talking about something called the gift and inheritance taxes. Gift taxes have to do with where you decide to give some property from yourself to, say, your son or your daughter, and what kinds of consequences may there be in the giving of that property to them, both from your standpoint and their standpoint. And the other one, inheritance tax, that has to do with where you die or someone dies and they decide that they're going to leave you the property or you're going to leave somebody the property, a property that you own, is there any tax consequences that are involved in that? So we'll be talking about that. So where we're going to start off with is, as usual, we're going to be talking about some definitions that are within the book. We want to make really sure that everybody has a firm understanding of what these things really mean. Uh, taxes are critical, just like every, every, every other one of these chapters in here. It's a critical part of the overall things that we deal with in real estate. And uh, it's a very, very important part of understanding uh, what the rules and the laws and, uh, are and how they may affect a transaction. So anyway, we're going to start out with a few definitions. I'm going to move over here to my old friendly document camera. And what we want to do is talk about just what property taxes happen to be. 
And so I'm going to be uh, moving this up here, and then we'll go into a little bit of detail about it. It says property taxes. A city or county receives most of its operating revenue from the assessment and collection of real property taxes. What's important about that is that you pay a lot of taxes. You pay federal tax, you pay state tax, you pay county taxes, you pay gas taxes. But the place that the county receives its income to pay for things like the police, the fire department, the school district, things like that is from property taxes. So it's important where that comes from. Whereas money that you pay to the state in the form of state income taxes is where the state gets its money to run. Again, in the federal government, that when you pay federal income taxes, that's where they get the money to run their budget. So it's understanding where what we're going to what taxes we're talking about and where that money is really being utilized. Going on from there, it says real property taxes are taxes determined according to the value of the real property and are paid annually or semi-annually. These taxes are called uh, ad valorem taxes. An ad valorem tax is a tax that is charged in proportion to the value of the property. So in other words, we have to have a value for the property that has to be Somebody setting the value for the property and then some tax that's levied against what somebody says it's worth. Okay. Property taxes are based on the concept that taxes should be assessed in accordance with the person's ability to pay. In the case of real, pro real estate, the, the higher the value of the property, the higher the property taxes are going to be. Okay, very, very important that you understand that. So in other words, if you have a piece of property that's worth $100,000, you're going to pay, at least according to the, what we'll talk about later, Proposition 13, your property is probably going to, or your property taxes will be somewhere in the neighborhood of about $1,000 a year. On the other hand, if you own a piece of property that's worth $500,000, your property taxes are probably going to be in the neighborhood of $5,000 a year. If it's a million dollars, it's going to be $10,000 a year. Typically, in California, at least, the base rate is 1% of the sales price of the property when it was transferred. So that's so that'll give you an idea. So the higher the value of the property, the higher you taxes you pay, the higher contribution you're making towards the county to pay for things like schools, fire departments, things like that. Going on from there, um, what we want to do is also have a definition of what are the two entities that are involved in this property tax business. On the one hand, we have somebody called the county tax assessor. County tax assessor. So just to uh, go through what that is, it says the county tax assessor is a county officer who, who has the responsibility of determining the assessed valuation of the land, improvements, and personal property used in business. The county tax assessor determines the value of both the county and the city properties, except in a few cities that use their own assessors. Okay. The important point that we want to get here is that it's the county tax assessor. Not, that determines how much the property is worth. As I mentioned before, and we'll talk about it in a minute, typically in California now what happens is whenever we sell property, the new property taxes are 1% of the sales price. But we still have somebody called a property tax assessor that determines the value of the property. So, for example, if you feel that your property has gone down in value for some reason, who knows what that reason is, but for some reason, and you want to go and talk to somebody about the possibility of getting your tax bill lowered, then you would be talking to the county tax assessor. 
Okay? That's who you'd be talking to. Not the collector, but the assessor. And you're going to find out when we talk about this, the assessor and the collector are two different organizations. It's kind of like we don't want to be putting the fox in the hen house. We want to keep the money and the assessment separate. Okay? The other organization you're going to be dealing with is the county tax collector. Now, the collector is the one that collects the money. So it goes on from here, and it just says the county tax collector is the county officer who collects the real property taxes. He or she collects taxes. The county tax collector has nothing to do with determining how much the tax is levied. All they do is they have a bill. They say, according to uh, the assessor's office, you owe us $2,000. Where's the money? That's all they're concerned about, okay? If the property taxes are not paid, the county tax collector will eventually require that the property be sold at a tax sale. Okay, so that's the people. That's the ones that are going to sit there. And essentially the way that this works is that when a piece of property comes into being, in other words, when a lot is made, subdivision, and it has a lot number assigned to it, it also has something called an assessor's parcel number. That number, I think I've mentioned this before, and you'll have to pardon me if I can't remember whether I mentioned it in this class or not before, but this number is just like your Social Security number, your student number, or your MasterCard or your bank account number. That's a number that the tax assessor has and the tax collector has in order to keep track of whether or not you've been making your payments on time. Okay, And that actually, that number is shown on the parcel map or shown on the subdivision map or the map that's essentially recorded at the county recorder's office when the property comes into being. So if somebody takes a, sub, a piece of raw ground, creates a subdivision, they assign a lot number, but they also assign a, if you will, a, uh, a assessor's parcel number to it to track the property taxes on that particular piece of property. Okay. Um, going on from here, now they start talking about something called Proposition 13. This is very, very, very important because for those of us that were in California that w when this was going on, uh, let me give you a little bit of a background on what this was. The easiest way I like to explain it is like this. What was happening and it has happened with a lot of different governmental organizations is that the taxpayers continuously complain that the taxes are going up. We complain about that with the federal government. We complain about the state government. We complain about it about all taxes. We don't like to pay taxes. And one of the ways that we typically do it, we just, you know, we just complain. And on the other hand, we have no control in many cases where that money goes. So what was happening is that the property taxes were continuously being raised here in California. In fact, in certain parts of the country, you'll go, like, for example, back in New York, where you'll have a piece of property where the property taxes will be very, very high. So what ended up happening is that, you know, the people finally got tired of the taxes going up. They said, you know what, if you, we let you continue to do this, you're going to put us in the poorhouse. <laughs> We're not even going to be able to afford to, you know, to pay the taxes. And so what they did is they said, you know, we've asked you to stop spending the money, and you haven't paid attention, county. So this is what we're going to do. If you're not going to control your spending, we're going to control how much money we give you. We're going to stop. We're going to we're going to stop allowing you to continuously raise the property taxes. And because this is a very at the time is a very very sensitive political issue. In other words, going to 
the California legislature and trying to get somebody to stand up there and actually sponsor a bill and get it through the legislature and signed by the governor is a very politically tough situation. Here in California, one of the ways that we isolate ourselves, our politicians isolate themselves, is by saying, you know what, if the legislature's not going to do it, if the governor's not going to do it, what we're going to do is we're going to go to the people. So that's where we have this proposition coming along. You'll notice a lot of things that are propositions are things that maybe sometimes are kind of politically sensitive. It's kind of like saying, you know what, we're going to get, we're going to let the people make the decision. So that's what they did with Proposition 13. They put it on the ballot. It's sometimes called the Jarvis GAN initiative. It was voted into law by us who were, you know, the, uh, the, uh, if you will, the, uh, you know, the uh, voters for California. We voted it into law. There was some court cases that tried to get it changed. There was a lot of complaints during that time. They said, you know what, we're not going to allow. You know, there were a lot of complaints. Like, for example, some of the complaints were things like, hey, we're going to have to close schools because we don't have enough money. We're going to have to pull back on our fire department. We're going to have to uh, close the libraries. We won't have them open all the time. Okay? And there were a lot of complaints along that area. But in a lot of cases, you know, those things, those hard business decisions have to be made. If you're running a government organization, you have to make those decisions. You have to turn around and say, you know, it would be nice to run the library 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But we, as taxpayers, can't afford to do that. We just can't afford it. So consequently, we need to cut back. And that's essentially what ended up happening. Now, there's a good and a bad point about this Proposition 13, and I'll, I'll show you in the book here in a minute. What Proposition 13 essentially said is, is that we're going to limit or we're going to assess your property, the amount of property taxes you're going to have to pay is based on 1% of the sales price of the property. So consequently, if I sell my property for $100,000, then my property taxes are going to be $1,000. Now, one of the other complaints that they had in Proposition 13, they said, you know what, we're going to have a disparity. You know, what's going to end up happening is, is that, hey, wait a minute, you know, the house is going to be looked at again and reassessed when it sells. So we could theoretically end up having two pieces of property sit right next door to each other. This one, somebody's lived in for years, years and years and years, and their property taxes are maybe based on $100,000. They haven't moved. The guy next door just moves into the neighborhood, and his property sells for, you know, $450,000, and his property taxes are $4,500 a year. So both of them are, are consuming the same amount of services. In fact, the person that's paying less may also have, you know, some young children or something they're using in schools, you know, all those things. Maybe they're having fights, and the cops are over there all the time. You know, they're using the services. Is there a disparity? Yes, it does happen. I happen to be one of those people that happens to have that lower tax rate on a house that I own. I have a house that I've owned since 1979, paid $77,000 for it. The house next door just sold for $450,000. Is there a disparity? Yes, there is. If I sell my house tomorrow, is it going to be reassessed to that higher rate? Yes, it will, Okay, which is important for us to know. It's important for us to know what the impact of that's going to be if we're going to buy or sell. Also important that we're, if we're going to be listing a property for sale or whatever, and we're looking at the property taxes knowing that if they're, say, $1,000 a year now, when it gets sold again, it's going to go up. It's going to go up based on the sales price. The thing that we need to do is have some sort of a rough idea on how that works, some rough idea on how that works. 
Now, we have now gone past, you know, naturally whenever you pass a law, there's a period of time in which you do something called grandfather things in. You have to think about the people that own property right now, how you're going to kind of handle those people, how you're going to handle the new people. So what I'm going to be showing you in a minute is a little bit about how they handle that. But suffice it to say that the easiest way to think about this is that when you sell a piece of property or you are buying a piece of property in California, your property taxes are going to be 1% of the sales price. And they say, well, why did you use sales price? The reason why is because, guess what? We've just had an arm's-length transaction. We've had a, 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 somebody who wants to sell the property. It's been exposed to the market. It's been shown to a lot of people. We finally found a buyer. <laughs> that buyer's been ready, willing, and able to buy it and has liked it. Hey, I think we call that an appraisal, don't we? It's sort of like an appraisal. Okay, so that's how it's said. It's fed out a fair thing. Even an appraiser could come back and say, I think it's worth more or less, but hey, what? The, the, that's what the market is dictating, at least right now, it's worth. Okay? So now I'm going to go back here for a minute and give you a little bit of history. It says Proposition 13 limits the amount of taxes to a maximum of 1% of the March 1st, 1975 market value of the property. Okay, so whatever the market value was at 1975, we're well past 1975 now. We are way past there. We're talking about 30-some years, what, 31 years hence past there, okay? Okay, so anyway, as of 1975, market value of the property plus the cumulative increase of 2% in market value each year thereafter, Okay. 2% in 2% of the increase in the market value. Okay, the value may not go up. Okay. Improvements made after March 1st of 1975 are added to the value in the year they are made. Improvements would be things like uh, you know, additions to the house, stuff like that. In fact, I think I've mentioned this before. If you put in for a building permit on a home to do an improvement what do I mean? When, when are you required to have a building permit? I think we've talked about this before. You know, that could be something like putting an addition on the house. Depending upon what municipal area you're in, you could be like a new roof that would require requires a building permit. Uh, if you're going to put a, a a deck on the back, okay, that requires a building permit. I mean, just about anything you're going to change the structural components of the air, uh, of the house, heating and air conditioning systems require a permit. Okay, so anytime you do that, you submit stuff to the planning department. Normally, if, like if it's going to be an addition, you're submitting plans to them. One of the copies of the plans that you submit to them also goes to the tax assessor's office, okay, so that they're notified of some kind of an improvement. That's how they know, just so you know that, okay. Anyway, going on from there, it says improvements made after March 1st, 1975 are added to the value of the year they are made. If ownership has changed after March 1st, 1975, the tax is limited to 1%, limited, notice limited to 1% of the market value plus 2% cumulative increase each succeeding year. If some cases property values came down, lowering taxes instead of raising them by 2%, any state-owned Allowed exemptions are deducted after figuring the basic tax rate, okay? We'll talk about that in a minute. So consequently, you just need to think about this 1%. I think that's what we want to drive home, that you get that concept of that 1% of the sales price, 
Okay. Now, there are certain exemptions to this. One of the things that some of our older friends and older, watch it because we're talking about people out of 55 and older, so you're talking about me, is that if you could conceivably see this, a lot of times there are people that have maybe bought a home when they've maybe been in their 30s or their 40s and they've raised their family. When they bought the house, even if it's a big house, it was really, it wasn't the market value if it wasn't too high. A good example is like what I'm talking about now, the house that I own, that uh, one, a ha- one of the houses I own in Cameron Park. The house is a three-bedroom, two-bath, two-car garage on a third of an acre with a lot of mature trees. It's a really nice house, okay? Now, the situation is, is that if you have somebody that sells that, their tax base, their property taxes that they're paying are fairly low. Now, all of a sudden, there may be a situation where, let's say the house was a little bit bigger. You know, this house is about 18, 1,900 square feet, but let's say it was maybe 3,000 square feet. What would happen is people may get to be 55, 60 years old and say, you know what, I don't want to have a big house anymore. I want to have a condominium. I want to have a townhouse. I want to live in a gated community. I want to live in, you know, uh, you know, one of those retirement communities. I don't want to ha- have to deal with the lawn. Now what they do is they're turning around and they're going to be buying a house that costs a lot more money. So all of a sudden, their idea was I'm going to sell this house, move out, and I'm going to be able to then move, you know, get a smaller house and hopefully my payments are a lot lower or whatever. Uh-oh, wait a minute. My property taxes are going to go up because the value of the property has gone up. So the question always comes up, is there any way I can transfer my tax base from the existing house to the new house? And the answer to that is yes. But these are the rules, okay? These are the rules. And this becomes very important, especially when you're looking at people that are saying what happens a lot of times when people get ready to retire, they move from working on getting an active income, you know, where they're getting an income for a paycheck, where they start living on a fixed income. And a fixed income typically means is that one of the things with the fixed income is it's usually not going to go up. Usually you don't have any ability to really earn any extra income unless you get another job. The other thing, too, is the fact that it usually is in some cases, considerably less than what you were making. So in other words, people maybe were making, I don't know, say $60,000 a year. They get ready to retire. They're not going to get $60,000 a year. They're going to get maybe $30,000 a year in retirement, and that's if they're doggone lucky, okay? But they're going to be making less money. So they're not going to have the same amount of income. And usually, they're also going to have some other expenses, especially after they live a few years, medical bills, things like that. So the thing is, they don't want to move and raise their property taxes at the same time. So, okay, so this is what we're talking about. So this is property tax base is transferable, Proposition 60 and 90. Under the following conditions, based on Proposition 60 and 90, homeowners may be permitted to transfer their current Proposition 13 tax base with them when they buy a new home. That sounds good. Now, these are the rules under which you can do it. Number one, homeowners over age 55. My goodness, I meet that requirement. I'm 56. I'm okay there. Number two, home purchased within two years of the original sale. So in other words, within two years means I purchased it before or I purchased it after. Okay, but within that two years before or after. I did that. Replacement home of equal or lesser value. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. That's one of the areas where you can run into a stumble. Okay, concept here is maybe you're talking about maybe moving out of a house that's worth a lot of money into a smaller house. Again, you have to calculate this out. 
Number four, new home must be in the same county or another participating county. Participating means that we have a relationship with the other county. So, for example, we're talking about if it's within the same county, within Sacramento, you move from South Sacramento to downtown, closer, I don't know, just because you want to be closer to downtown, okay? But you remain within the same county, it's transferable. But what happens if you want to sell your house and move to Placer County, okay, or El Dorado County, or Yolo County, or whatever, is it transferable? So what you have to do is you have to check with the other county to see if they will also agree to allow you to transfer that tax base. Okay? Where would this come in uh, being very important? Especially if you have people that are older, they're getting ready to retire, they want to move on, they want to downsize the size of the house, and they want to buy something smaller because they don't want to maintain it. They don't want to have to cut the lawns. They don't have to do all that kind of work, and they want to spend the rest of their time traveling. This would be an example, senior citizens kind of people, people over 55. But over 55 are not senior citizens, by the way. <laughs> okay, goes down further. It says Proposition 60 and now 90 allow empty nesters, which means the kids are gone, to purchase new homes one at a time while holding on to their lower tax base, thus freeing up a larger multiple bedroom homes for younger families. So the idea is is that if the people that don't have the large families anymore move to the smaller houses, then the people that are getting the larger families can move to the bigger houses. That's the concept behind it. Going on from there, there is a lot. They give you a brief synopsis here of Proposition 13. Uh, I'm not going to go through and read this. Basically, this is covering most of the highlights of the Proposition 13. Again, I would highly recommend that you spend the time to go over and read this. This is this was really uh, earth-breaking or earth-moving legislation. This was a major thing that California did, major uh, proposition that was passed. You know, I mean, California a lot of times is a le- as many many times is looked as being a leader in in different areas, and this was one of them trying to, you know, limit that, that those increases in property taxes, okay? Now, have they found ways to get around this? Yes. And the ways that they get around it is that you go down to get your building permit to buy, build a new house, and you find out that you have a lot of fees, okay? So that's one of the ways. You know, you go, wait a minute, to hook up a water pipe is going to cost me $10,000? How does that come out? You know, a little bit of glue, and I stick it together. No, it's not the physical work. It's the... It's a way, it's a place, it's an event where they can collect some fees. Okay. Okay, moving on from there, they talk about property taxes becoming a lien. Uh, the, th- the easiest way I could explain this is to think about the fact that, you know, and I've said this in other classes, if you call the property tax assessor's office or the collector's office and just pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, I want to send you some money, they'd say, okay, wait a minute, let's check your account. And they look at it and they go, well, you don't owe any property taxes right now. Okay? So we have no place to put the money. (laughs) So consequently, when we talk about a lien, the first thing that ends up happening is that the county tax assessor has to turn around or, you know, or there has to be a bill placed against your property and says, now you've done something and now we have this lien. Okay? It'd be like calling up a restaurant and saying, excuse me, I want to, here's my MasterCard. I want to, I want to give you some money. And they go, what for? And you say, well, I'm thinking about someday down the road buying some food here. And they go, we can't do that. 
you haven't eaten here yet. So it's kind of like there has to be a point in time in which you have this lien placed. Once the lien is placed, then there's something that they can charge or take your money for, and that's to pay that bill. So that's why we talk about it as a tax lien. The way the property tax bill works, and they talk about this in here, is that the county and this, the county, city and county fiscal year starts on July 1 and ends on June 30th. And you'll find out that not only the city and the county does that, but a lot of businesses do that. What you're trying to do is to reflect the concept is let's get together and figure out how this business works and what are the best months so that we distribute the income correctly throughout the year. And so that we don't end up collecting some money or not collecting the money and the bills come due. If you could imagine that, you know, all of a sudden you, you know, you're taking a look at something and you say, well, we've got to pay bills. We've got to pay for the road, streets, curbs, gutter, or whatever. And you turn around and say, well, we don't have any money right now. <laughs> and where the bill comes due, but you've got to wait months before you ever get the money to pay for it. So what you're trying to do in a fiscal year is to more or less figure out how do we do business? When should we be collecting money? When should we pay our bills? So on and so forth. And so that's why we call it a fiscal year. Different than, say, like we personally, for our income taxes, we use a calendar year. Uh, at the end of December, we say that's the end of it. Anything we, we earn after December 31st, you know, starting in January is for the new year. So we have a different year, and, and that's because of the way it reflects us. That, that calendar year probably will not work very well, does not work well with a county or a city or may not work with businesses. So that's why we have a fiscal year. Anyway, it goes on from there, and it just says, okay, all revenues and expenditures are planned for this period of time. Okay, and they give you a little figure in here, figure, I'm not sure where that is. Oh, okay. This right here is what they're talking about, this little graphic. And this is just showing you when property taxes become due and when they're payable. So, for example, January 1, property tax becomes a lien on the real property. So, in other words, you owe the money as of that date. July 1, the fiscal year starts. November 1, the first installment is due and delinquent after December 10th. Okay, that's why you have to pay it by December 10th. If you don't pay it by December 10th, you're going to end up having a, uh, you know, you're going to have a, a late fee, if you will. And then uh, February 2nd, the second installment is due and is delinquent after April 10th. Okay, so it's like a time schedule. Now, where do you get involved with this as a real estate agent? You primarily get involved in this because you're working with a client and you're trying to figure out what sorts of obligations they're going to have, especially if you're talking about somebody that is trying to figure out as close to the penny how much money they're going to be walking away with. So that's where you're going to get what we commonly refer to as the net sheet. You're going to take the sales price, commissions, all the expenditures, and one of the things you're going to be doing is figuring out have you paid your taxes yet, your property taxes, if you if you have or if we sell it in this month, are you going to get a refund, or is that money away? So that's why you as an agent are going to be figuring that out, along with all the other figures, because the client primarily wants to know, I need to get this much money out of the deal in order for me to buy the next house. So that's why they want to know. Who really figures this out in the end, I mean to the nth detail, is the escrow officer. The escrow officer is the one that does all the prorations, has all the bills and everything else. And by the way, if you ever need any help in that area, escrow officers are outstanding. You call them up. They do this every day. 
you know, on, on sometimes 60, 70, 80 transactions a month. They happen to be an expert in the area. You call up, give them the data of it, and they can help you figure it out, So especially when you first get started. Okay, so that's the, when that's due. Now, on this page, you may never see this. This is your property tax bill. And the way that I like to explain this, and if you can follow along with me a little bit on this, and that's this. Normally, when we buy our first, our second, or our third house, we usually don't have a lot of money to put as a down payment. You know, usually we, we're looking like a no-down VA or a small percentage for FHA or no-down CalVet or something, you know. One of the things that all of those programs require us to do is create what we call an impound account, some money that we set aside that's held normally by whoever we're making the payments to, where when we make our monthly payment, we pay principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. What happens is, is that that goes into an impound account, and the person that's servicing the loan or the entity that's servicing the loan, what they do is once a year they pull out a check and write a check for the property or for the uh, for the insurance, and twice a year for the property taxes. So typically, here's what happens. We move into the house. We get a tax bill, a property tax bill from the tax assessor's office. We panic. We say, we owe $5,000 or $3,000. My God, you know, we're going to, you know, this is terrible. So we get on the phone, and we usually will do something like either call our real estate agent or we'll call the title company. We'll call somebody. And after a few minutes, we'll realize that they'll calm us down and tell us, you know what, don't worry about it because you're, that's just for your information. We've actually, you know, every month when you make your payment, you're paying that one month at a time. So after you do that after a while, you go, oh, okay, you mean when I make my payments that's covered? Yeah, okay. So when the next year when you get the property tax bill, you never look at it again. And probably it's the same thing. As long as you have an impound account, you probably don't really look at the tax bill. It's not until you probably get into the fifth, sixth, seventh house where you can put more than 20% down that all of a sudden you have a choice. Do you want to have your stuff impounded or do you want to pay it yourself? And it's at that time that's the first time you're going to look at that property tax bill. Okay? What this tax bill is doing, and I'll just go through it really quickly with you, this is an annual property tax bill. I'm going to zoom in and out so we can see what's here. Uh, this happens to be, let me go through here, uh, see if this is, uh, come, yeah, okay. Annual property tax bill for the cities, county, schools, and other tax agencies in Los Angeles, but they all pretty much look the same. This is secured property tax bill for the fiscal, for fiscal year uh, July 1, 2003 to June 30, uh, 2004, so it's telling you when it's due. This is telling you who the treasurer and the tax collector is and then who to call for tax assistance or who to call and say, you know, what's going on? I think I'm paying too much. I already paid, whatever. Now, when you call that number, by the way, you may get somebody that may refer you to somebody, okay? It doesn't mean that you're talking directly to the person. It's just getting you in the area, and then you may have a specific question about your tax bill that, you know, may end up going to the tax assessor or may go to the tax collector or may go to somebody else. So it depends. Down here on the left-hand side is where you have your tax ID number. That's your assessor's parcel number, okay? And then it says owner of record as of this date is, and it gives you the name of the person and, uh, as shown below, and it gives you the mailing address. Now, you may say, well, what, what do you mean by mailing address? 
because you may very well have property. This may be an investment piece of property, like a rental, where, you know, the tax bill goes to you, but somebody else lives in the house or in the apartment complex, okay? Um, going down from there, let me see if there's anything else on here. This is just the tax assessor's office located down below. This is telling me that it's a track. It's a condominium unit number two. That's what I'm getting out of that bill. On the right-hand side here, it's just showing me, again, my tax ID. This is the agency. This is where the rates are and where my money is going that I'm paying. Okay. Of course, some phone numbers. If you want to talk directly to these people, flood control, 911, uh, so on and so forth. Down below here gives you what the taxes, total taxes due. Shows you when the first one's due, when the second one is due. It shows you, and let me see if I can roll this up here a little bit. It shows you what the assessment is. It says right here, as of this year, as of, Mar uh, as of this year, the land is valued at $43,828, and that's the taxable value. That the improvements, meaning the house or the structures on it, are valued at $39,090, okay? This says less an exemption, total less an exemption if there is an exemption. This doesn't have an exemption on it, which we'll talk about in a minute. The exemption is, is $7,000 of the assessed value, of the assessed value. So what would happen is, is that I would be looking at the assessed value here, and I would be taking $7,000 off of that, okay? And then I would be remitting the taxes. But at least from what I see here, there's no exemption against this property. So what I would have to make the assumption, right or wrong, since there's not a homeowner's exemption or a veteran's exemption, it's probably a rental piece of property. That's what I would have to surmise from looking at that because the homeowner's exemption and the veteran's exemption are only allowed on owner-occupied property. Okay? And then this down here shows me the net taxable value of the property. Okay? I'm going to flip this over for a minute. I'm going to zoom in and out a little bit. This side right here is giving you the coupons that you're going to do. What will happen is you'll get these in the mail. This, is, this right here is for the first installment. This is for the second installment. What you do is you take a pair of scissors and you cut across there. I'll zoom in on the first one. This is just giving you, um, again, we'll zoom in here. This is just giving you the mailing address where the property or the mailing address for the property, payment due, where to make the payment to. This shows you what the first installment happens to be, where it's going to get mailed to. Normally it goes in one of those nice little clear envelopes. This is the assessor's parcel number. This is the first installment amount due. Same thing up here. You go to the second one, same situation, okay? That's your tax thing. You cut that off, put your check in there, and off it goes. That's your tax coupon. All right, I think I beat that one to death as far as that goes. Okay, next thing is the homeowner's exemption. Now, I say this to people, and they all go, uh, nobody told me that, you know. Oh, no, that happens automatically. You know, I, Pat, I think you're full of a lot of baloney. Uh, notice what they allow a homeowner to do is to take a certain, they want to give a homeowner a break. 
say, if you live in the property and it's your primary residence, then we're going to allow you to pay a little bit, and notice I said a little bit less in property taxes. That $7,000 they're talking about is not $7,000 relief in your property tax bill. It's a $7,000 deduction in the assessed value. So as an example, if my assessed value in my property is $100,000 and I have a homeowner's exemption, means I can take and deduct $7,000 from the 100 or my property taxes are levied on the $93,000. That's what it means. Okay. Now, you have to file for this. And people say, well, no, you don't. And I say, yes, you do. <laughs> you want to call the county up and you want to say, excuse me. I just bought this piece of property. I want to make sure that I have done all of the appropriate documentation and paperwork to get the homeowner's exemption. People say, well, no, that happens automatically. Well, wait a minute. When you buy property, there's no way that the county automatically knows that that's your primary residence. You could have bought that property as a rental piece of property. You could have bought it as a second home. You could have went on title with it for your son, your daughter, your granddaughter, or whatever. Some way or another, you need to say to them, hold on a minute, this is my place. I live here. This is where I hang out. This is my home, and therefore, I am entitled to this homeowner's exemption. Okay, so you need to file for this is what I'm saying. Okay, going on from here, it says homeowner's property tax exemption is $7,000 of the assessed value. Okay, okay. Uh, now, how do you get... Qualified for this, okay, it says the homeowner's property tax exemption is deduction on the property tax bill of the first $7,000 of assessed value of owner-occupied property, not rental, owner-occupied. The homeowner's exemption on your home does, does the following. All personal property of the homeowner is exempt from property taxes. Number two, a resident owner receives $7,000 homeowner's exemption in assessed value if the property is the principal residence as of one March. Okay, That works out to be roughly about, if it's 1% of the assessed value, it works out to be about $70 per year or a really great time at round table pizza Okay, with the family. Okay. Um, goes on from there, it says, the time to file for the homeowner's exemption is from January 1st to April 15th in order to receive the full exemption. Once the exemption is filed, it remains on the property until the homeowner terminates it. Okay? Now, you can terminate it by a couple of ways. One is you just sell it. If you sell it, then the new house you move into that becomes your primary residence, you refile again. On the other hand, you could also have terminated it because of the fact that you have maybe, let's say, moved out of it, and maybe you've, you're renting someplace. Okay, you've moved out, or you've moved out of the, you've moved out of the town, and you've decided you can't sell it. You're moving back to New York. You can't sell it right now, and you're going to turn it into a rental piece of property. Then you have that's how you terminate it. If the exemption is terminated, a new a new claim form must be f obtained from uh, from and filled out with the assessor to regain your eligibility. Qualifying owner-occupied rental property receives a $7,000 homeowner's exemption. For example, on the assessed value of $500,000 minus the homeowner's exemption of $7,000 would be $493,000. Pretty simple. Prop 13 is 1% of the $7,000, so the tax savings in reality is about $70, or the cost of a couple very large pizzas and some soda 
um, at, a, at a good pizza place you know, or a good night out with the family. That's about it. It's not a lot of money, but it's something that's due you. Okay. And by the way, if you notice, it's 1%, so it doesn't, you're always going to get the same break, whether it's a property that's 100000 200 300 400 5000 same break. It's still $7,000. Now, you also have uh, a thing they talk in here about the homeowners um, and renters' property tax rebate. This is for senior citizens and disabled people. And there are two different types of programs, if you will, okay? The first one is, uh, is, is, is this. It says, uh, the first one is, this is a property tax relief law for any resident who is 62 years of age or older as of January 1st and has a household income of not more than $12,000 for a calendar year. You may say, who in the world is that? Well, hello, unless you do some financial planning, and watch what you're doing. That could be your Social Security coming into your house. Okay? Do I know people that live on that kind of money? Yeah. And many times those are people that are living in a house. They own it free and clear. They don't. They didn't put enough money away for retirement. They're living on Social Security, and their income is in that level. And they need. They're going to get hammered with property taxes. So it's a way to help those people out. Okay. The applicant must have owned and occupied his or her home within the last fiscal year. Persons under age 62 who are totally disabled also qualify for the rebate. Notice it uses the word rebate. Okay, you got to watch for the key words. Rebate means you're getting something back. Okay, a similar program provides a rebate for elderly and disabled persons who rent their homes or apartments. And now on the class website, I have a link to more information about this for those of you that are interested. So if you have friends, family, relatives, whatever, that are looking for some way that maybe this may fit, you can go there and get more information about it. Okay, also senior citizen centers are very good at providing that kind of information. Now you also have, uh, okay, so we I think we've pretty much covered that one. Let me see if there's any, yeah, I think we've covered that. One okay. The next one that you have in here is called a disabled and senior citizens uh, property tax postponement. Notice the word postponement. It's not give back. It's not relief. Or it's not rebate. It's postponement. Postponement means to me you still are going to owe it, but you're putting off that date. Okay. So in this case, it's the senior citizens who are age 62 years of age or older and have a household income of $24,000 or less. By the way, always look at these income amounts. Uh, if they don't change this year, there's always a possibility down the road there may be some kind of an adjustment. So you have to keep track of what's going on. May qualify for this tax postponement assistance program. To uh, The program offers them the option of having the state pay all or part of the taxes on their homes. In return, a lien is placed on the property for the amount of the, uh, that the state has to pay. The specific lien becomes payable when the taxpayer moves or dies. So in other words, when Aunt Mary moves out and goes to the old folks' home, or Pat moves out and goes to the old folks' home, okay, we're talking about that. Maybe they sell the house, you know, to help pay for that or the person dies and the house is passed on to some family member. Okay. 
the specific lien becomes, okay, payer when the person dies. In effect, the homeowner is relieved of his or her tax burden in exchange for a lien on his or her home to be paid upon death. California has extended this program to include persons under the age of 62 or legally, legally, who are legally disabled. Okay? That, which gets into another realm. A lot of times when we're talking about legally disabled, Normally, those people are usually people that are long-term disabled, that something has happened to them. They've, they cannot go back and do the occupation they've been working on. Many of those people are also qualified for some form of Social Security disability because Social Security is very, very strict on, on you know, giving out disability, and Social Security is a long-term program. Typically in California, if we work for a com- an organization or a company, we have what we call state disability, which pays for the first like if we're in the hospital or we get sick and we're going to be off for a while, it kicks in. But uh, it runs out after a period of time. Usually it falls along the same sort of lines like unemployment does, you know, the same kind of a concept. You're going to pay, turn in paperwork and then you're going to get paid a certain amount of money. But it runs out. Social Security normally kicks in usually as early as after six months or so. And usually they look very heavily upon people, what their disability is, can they go back to work, can they get retraining, so on and so forth. So we're talking about somebody who's been through this kind of rigorous thing. But again, this is something that you would want to put into your repertoire of knowing this stuff is available. Another exemption that you can have on the property taxes is something called the veteran's exemption. And uh, this is kind of a little bit tricky here because you have to read all the stuff that goes along with this. It says, any California resident who served in the military during a time of war is entitled to an annual $4,000 property tax exemption against the assessed value of the property. Sounds pretty interesting so far. The exemption also applies to the widow, widowed mother, or pensioned father of a deceased veteran. However, the exempt property is limited to the assessed value of less than $5,000 for a single veteran and $10,000 of married. For disabled California veterans who qualify, however, the assessment can be, limit can be raised up to $100,000. Now, again, for those people that were in the service that have a service-connected disability, we know who we are, and there's levels of disability. And those levels of disability are usually like 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%. And each one of those percentages have other things that go along with them. And, uh, for example, I believe the last time that I checked, somebody that has 100% disability also can not only would this apply to them, but also would uh, qualify, for example, for having the, I think it's the uh, registration on their car, one of the cars they have, is automatically they don't have to pay it if they happen to be disabled. So there's certain kinds of things. Where do you find out about that? You call the county. You call the county up and say, excuse me, I happen to be a veteran. Do I qualify for this? And they can fill you in on the details. Okay? Okay. All right. And I think that that's okay. They also go on from there and they talk about, uh, you know, if the property, if you don't pay your property taxes, are you going, will they sell the property for property taxes? And the answer to that is yes. The, the, the issue, though, and are there people that buy these properties? The answer to that is yes. 
And many times the reason why people will not pay their property taxes is because for whatever reason um, they feel that they really can't do anything with the property. Sometimes you'll see where you'll have, you'll see properties that are kind of weird shaped, triangular shaped, uh, they're not buildable lots, you know, and they'll just say the heck with it. You know, I, I can't do anything with the property anyway. I can't build a house on it. It doesn't meet zoning requirements. I'm just not going to pay the property tax. I'm going to let the property go. But it's not like it happens sort of automatically and the new person that buys the property can come in and build on it. There's a time period in which you can come back and reclaim the property and pay property taxes and bring it back up to speed again. And again, in here, they talk about that process. They talk about, they talk about the delinquent sale, the book sale. Um, I'll see if I can find it. It says, each year on or before June 8th, the county tax collector publishes a list of tax delinquent properties. By the way, I have this on the website too. And the website for Sacramento County looks just, for this purposes, looks just like the one they show you in the book for, for Los Angeles. It's the list of the properties that are for sale. This is his or her notice of the intent to sell all, all such properties on which the property taxes have not been paid for one year, okay, are on this list. Strictly speaking, this is not a true sale, but is, is a formality called the book sale that starts a five-year redemption period, okay? If the property is not redeemed within five years, it will, it will be deeded over to the state. So it goes through whatever that process happens to be, just so you know that. And again, I have the links on the website, and I think probably the next time I'll show you that, okay? Okay, so we've dealt with this. This happens to be the one for Los Angeles, the, the website that they have for the uh, property taxes. And as I mentioned before, the uh, Sacramento County works pretty much the same way. It talks about the rules and laws. If you look over here to the left-hand side, and I'll kind of blow this up, uh, you'll notice that they want people to be aware of what, how the process works you know, what the legislation is, you know, in other words, the rights of redemption, terms and conditions, bidder registration, bid cards, so on and so forth. So all the information that you would need to know about that particular process is listed there, okay, so that you're aware of what's going on, okay. And uh, as I mentioned before, I'll show you again, if time permits, the next time where we have the same sort of a thing in, um, if you will, in... Um, trying to think right now, in uh, Sacramento, okay? Because it helps sometimes to say, okay, they do that in Los Angeles, but what happens in Sacramento? <laughs> you know, show me in Sacramento how it works. It works the same way. Okay, now the next thing we're going to talk about or start to talk about now is something called special tax assess, uh, special assessment tax, okay? And what this amounts to is that in some cases... Some people that are in here are going to say, Pat, I think you're kind of making it up. I've never heard of that. I've been in California my entire life. I've never had to deal with this. I think you're full of baloney. And you may find that if you live in a community that's been around for years and years and years, you know, a lot of years the houses are built, you live in the community, you're going to find out you pay your property tax bill, and that's pretty much it. Now, if you live in a new area, okay, where there's new development going on, you may find out that you do have these special assessments. 
And as an example, up where I live, I have something on my property called Melarus, which we'll talk about the next time. What it is is that when a developer gets ready to put a subdivision in, the easiest way I like to explain this is that they go down to the county. <laughs> they wander in there and they say, hi, you know, you're at the front counter, you know. Listen, I'm thinking about putting a 200-unit subdivision in. Would you put my streets in for me? Would you put my curbs and gutters in? And they go, hey, that's nice. It would be nice to have that property tax base here. We'd love that. You know, we could use more business down at the grocery store. But the problem is we don't have any money to put that in. We, the county, have no money to build those streets. If you want to put that subdivision in, you're going to have to pay for those streets. Of course, they smile and they're very nice about it. So the, the question comes up is, well, where does the developer get the money to do this? You know, where did they get the money? Because that's, that's not cheap. If you go out to a subdivision, for example, you'll see that they go out and the land is flat. Then they bring out a bunch of bulldozers and backhoe and all kinds of Kubota tractors and dig holes and pound on the rock. And the dump trucks are going back and forth. And when they get all done and they're completely finished, there's some streets in and there's a, you know, and there's a bunch of land back again. And it looks, except for the streets, it doesn't really look that much different. But it's very expensive. It's very costly to put those in. So consequently, what happens is, is this allows that developer to go out and raise what we call a bond issue, that they sell these bonds to the investment community. In other words, pension plans, profit sharing, insurance companies, or whatever. Okay, They sell these bonds. They get the money from their investors. They use that money to turn around and make the improvements put the streets and curbs and gutters in. And then what ends up happening is, guess what? When you buy your new house, you have your tax bill, plus you have this thing called Melarus, which is an additional tax that you have to pay. As an example, and I'll probably mention this the next time, if unless I forget, where I live, I lived in El Dorado Hills for 18 years. I had property up in a place called Ridgeview Village. I had my property taxes. I never paid Melarus, never. Okay, why? Because it was already there. The streets, curbs, and gutters were in. I moved three and a half, four miles to the other side to a place called Serrano, bought a house, pay property taxes, and guess what? Also pay Melarus, okay, for those improvements. And it's not cheap, okay? Why? Because when the builder put them in, they needed to raise the money. I'm the one that picks that bill up and continues to pay for it, Okay. So we're pretty close to the end. The next time we're going to pick up here our discussion about these special assessments and move on through the rest of the information in the chapter. Otherwise, thank you very much for coming, and we'll see you back here the next time. Bye-bye. Have a nice day.